My Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video, I'm going to be talking about the named weapons in The Lord of the Rings. Notice I did not say swords. There is one non-sword weapon that has a name in The Lord of the Rings, though nobody knows about it, for the most part. So this is not really a top 10 or a top 5 list, because there's a weird number of them, and I figured to leave any of them out would be kind of doing an injustice. And there's really no particular way to rank some of these because they really just get names and that's all you know. So I'm not really going to do in any particular order, but I am going to talk about uh, each sword to the extent that we know much of anything about it, give a little bit of the history if we know any, and uh, show a little bit of my collection too. So let's get started. Friendly word of caution before we get going. Uh, I will be talking about story elements that, uh, if you have not read The Lord of the Rings, you may not know. Even if you've seen the movies, some of the things that I'll be talking about are different between the book and the movie, and I'm going to be talking about the way things happen in the book. So if you haven't read them and you don't want to be spoiled, stop watching. So the first sword I want to talk about is Glamdring, which I have. This, in my opinion, is the most... A aesthetically pleasing of all the swords that they put out in the Peter Jackson movies. It's a pretty nice piece of work. Mine, of course, is not actually anything other than just a replica. Uh, but this is probably the sword with the most developed history of any of the swords or weapons that we know about in Lord of the Rings that have names. Uh, the history of it goes a little bit like this. At some point in Gondolin, in the First Age, which you can read about in the Silmarillion, uh, this belonged to one of the more prominent individuals in the city of Gondolin. I think there might even be a point where it says who it belonged to, but I'm not sure about that. Um, at some point, at any rate, the sword was lost to history, and the next time we come across it is in The Hobbit, where the, um, the dwarves and Bilbo come across the trolls, and after the trolls are turned to stone, thanks to Gandalf's intervention, we get uh, an exploration of the troll's cave. And in the troll's cave, there's lots of really old junk and some really nice weapons. And of course, it's really weird how they got there in the first place, but trolls like to loot things, and who knows, they could have brought them from who knows where, but they find Glamdring. They also find Orchrist, which is another sword uh, that also goes back to the days of Gondolin, and also Sting. Sting, of course, is the more famous of the swords that gets found there, even though it's not really a sword, it's more of a dagger, but for one of a hobbit size, it suffices. So you get three that all come along at the same time. They all go back to Gondolin. They're all made by elves. When they get to uh, Rivendell in The Hobbit, Elrond is shown Glamdring and Orchrist, and he basically explains their history a little bit, talks about what their names are because they have runes on them. The Glamdring is the Elvish for Foe Hammer. Orchrist is for Goblin Cleaver. So that's kind of a little bit of a history of Glamdring. Gandalf continues to carry Glamdring pretty much throughout the movie, well, and throughout the book as well, of course. Orchrist, I might as well talk about it here since it's a companion sword. Orchrist ends up being carried by Thorin Oakenshield, he eventually has it taken from him when he is captured by the elves in Mirkwood, and he doesn't really ever get it back. But when he is killed and then buried, the elven king uh, 
it essentially returns it and it, it is buried with him in his tomb. And at the end of The Hobbit, it says that his, um, anytime any enemy comes near the lonely mountain, the sword starts to glow. And so it would, they could never be taken by surprise. Um, and of course, that's the other thing about these blades because they're elvish made. They glow blue when orcs or goblins are nearby. Now, they screwed this up in the movie because the only one that ends up glowing blue is Sting. I don't know wh how they messed that up, why they messed that up. Fact is, they did it. If you actually watch the uh, commentary by Peter Jackson, then you find out that uh, he they realized this kind of after the fact, and they make it a joke basically saying, we ran out of glue blowy stuff in the movie. We can only do Sting. So they made a joke about it because they realized the mistake after the fact, but the point is it should have been glowing blue just like Sting was, and Orchrist also should have glow glowed blue in the Hobbit movies as well. So that's Glamdring and Orchrist and a little bit of Sting. I'll finish up Sting's history in the next segment. So Sting obviously goes to Bilbo. It doesn't have its own proper name. Bilbo names the Sting, names it Sting after he fights off the spiders in Mirkwood, and basically because he realizes it's you know, he's stung the spiders, and he uses that nickname with Smaug uh, later. He starts giving himself all these kind of Ridley nicknames, Barrel Rider and whatnot, and one of them is the Spider Stinger, which of course refers to the fact that he stung spiders with Sting. Uh, sting, of course, is just a dagger. It's not a full sword. Uh, I don't actually have that one in my collection. But he, of course, ends up taking it throughout his adventure, brings it back, uh, and eventually takes it to Rivendell when he leaves uh, at his 111th birthday party. Frodo, when he finally reaches Rivendell in The Lord of the Rings, of course inherits Sting as well as Bilbo's mithril coat from Bilbo. And then he carries Sting for most of the rest of the movie, well, for the story, either mo movie or book. Uh, he only finally gives it up uh, at the point where they're in Shelob's lair, and he gives it to Frodo, I'm sorry, gives it to Sam, who then uses it to hack away, I'm sorry, I'm getting that backwards. He keeps Sting, but he gives Sam the file of Galadriel to hold off Shelob while Sam, uh, while Frodo, I'm getting all mixed up here, while Frodo cuts through the web that Shelob had used to block off the uh, the exit to her lair. So... Frodo cuts that away, they get out, and at some point, Shelob, of course, overtakes Frodo, stings him. Sam takes Sting and fights off Shelob, and then thinking that Frodo is dead, keeps Sting for himself and tries to set out to destroy the ring and then comes back. Now, if you watch the movie, that the events happen in a completely different way. They totally mess this up uh, because Sam is told to go home by Frodo and all. I don't I don't care about any of that because that's totally against the book and totally against the character of Frodo as an actual person. Just ignore all that. I'm talking about the actual story written by Tolkien here. So anyway, Sam of course ends up rescuing Frodo, but Frodo basically says, I don't think it's gonna be my part to ever strike a blow in this again, so you keep staying. Plus, at that point, he's so worn down, he doesn't want to carry any more than he absolutely has to. So, he's reached the point of, 
I'm not going to engage in any combat. You keep staying. And at that point, he keep Sam keeps staying until the end where uh, after they're rescued, I think Frodo ends up wearing Sting one more time, basically as kind of a, a part of his ceremonial garb whenever they finally uh, meet Aragorn, who is now king, and they have to dress up appropriately for the banquet. So that's kind of the history of Sting as we know it, and Frodo also leaves Sting to Sam at the very end, of course, too. So that's the history of Sting. Okay, in this segment I'm going to go over another pair of swords, and in this case, they're swords that most people probably don't even know have names. Uh, one of them is Theoden's sword, which in the movie is not named, but in the book it actually has a name. It's Herugrim, and it's never really explained what that means, unfortunately, so I can't really tell you what that means. There might be some uh, other piece of information that you could find that tells what it means. It may have a, it may be directly pulled from some Old Norse uh, language or something like that, but I don't know that information off the top of my head. So, but anyway, I mean, you can tell there's a very definite horse motif going on there. You might could have caught that in the movies if you paid attention. Um, we don't really have a lot of history behind this sword either. It's probably one that's passed down in Theoden's family. The other sword that I want to talk about as far as this being a pair, is Eomer's sword, which also has a name. And you never really even find out that it's a name until he uh, kind of just says it out loud. There's a lot of battle cries that get thrown around in The Lord of the Rings. And one that Eomer uses at one point is Guthwine for the Mark. The Mark being, of course, their, their own name for the land of Rohan. Guthwine being his sword. And I think there may be one one or two other mentions of the fact that that's the name of his sword, but that's really all we get. So there's not much to talk about there. And, you know, there's there's really very little history to either of these two swords, which kind of makes sense. They're not, you know, they're from a relatively younger culture. They're from, neither of the swords have anything particularly unique about them. They don't belong to anybody particularly special in, in the grand scheme of the Middle-earth mythos. Um, but it is interesting that they're both named. It's another one of those things where Tolkien throws in these details just to create extra, um, extra sense of realism. So there's two more swords for you. Now I've got just a few more before I can wrap up, and of course you know what one of them's going to be, but there's still at least one surprise left. So my last surprise for this video is Iglos. What the heck is Iglos? Okay, it's uh, actually a spear, not a sword. This is the one example where we have a weapon that is not a sword that has a name. And it belonged to Gilgalad. And if you watch the movie, there's actually a very, very, very quick reference to him in the intro where you see the war between the elves and men and Sauron in the very, very beginning where it's going through all the history before it gets to the real story. You probably thought it was Elrond because he looks a lot like Elrond, wears very similar armor. But there's a point where it shows a guy who's basically just kind of driving a spear into a dead orc. That's actually Gilgalad. Who is Gilgalad? Well, again, you'd have to really read the Silmarillion to get a better idea of who this is. He, in fact, was the High King of the Noldor. If you read the history in the Silmarillion, what happens is the Noldor are one of three branches of elves 
and the Noldor are the ones who, well, one of the Noldor is one of, is the person who creates the Silmarils, which are stolen, and that's why they come back to Middle-earth, and that's basically what the Silmarillion is all about, is their attempt to regain the Silmarils. Well, when they come back to Middle-earth, they have a High King, and it, at first it's Feanor. He's killed pretty quickly, um, and then it devolves down to different people, and it changes hands frequently because kings keep dying because there's wars and it keeps passing to different branches of the family. So you've got all these different people who end up being high kings and at some point the 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 realms are so broken up and destroyed that there's really you know not a whole lot of people left to be under a king and but you eventually get uh to a man named well man I say man elf named Iranian who takes the name Gilgalad and after the end of the Silmarillion he fakes he he's the last person to be the high king of the Noldor uh, once you know all of the Silmarillion is complete and, and the the battle is essentially won for the good guys until Sauron comes later on in in the second age he ends up leading the remainder of the Noldor as the last person with any real right to claim the kingship. And he basically rules the Noldor for the entirety of the Second Age until Sauron finally makes his war on Middle-earth and the men of Numenor come back under Elendil and his sons Sildur and Narion. And Gilgalad, along with uh, Elendil, form the last alliance of men and elves, which is, again, kind of hinted at in the intro to the Lord of the Rings movies where it says a last alliance of men and elves. They're actually referring to the last alliance. That's what it's called because it's the last major alliance between a, you know, a huge group of elves and a huge group of men. It never happens again. At that, after that, it's basically men doing most of the fighting. But Gilgalad is the king and he ends up dying along with Elendil fighting Sauron. And the way that happens is actually slightly different than the way they portrayed in the movies, but that's irrelevant to the point here. Point: The main thing I'm getting at is just that's, that's who Gilgalad is, and so that's why his weapon is important. He actually fights with Elendil hand-to-hand -hand with Sauron, and so his weapon, even though it's basically unknown, is, is not unimportant. And his weapon, Iglos, actually means something. It's an ice spear or icicle. I can't remember the exact term, but it's it's said somewhere, just not directly in the Lord of the Rings, I think. But that's the history of his weapon and why it's important. So now I have one more, and I'm sure you know what it is, so let's get to it. Okay, the weapon you've all been waiting for, which is kind of two weapons in one, Anduril, or if, you know, before the Lord of the Rings starts, it's Narsil. This, of course, belonged to Elendil and then Isildur after him. Uh, when Elendil had it, of course, it was broken in the fight with Sauron, and so therefore ends up being the shards of Narsil for basically the entirety of the Third Age right up until the end where it gets reforged. This is interesting because, it, again, this is an area where the movies depart from the books pretty substantially. In the movie, of course, you get... I don't remember, I don't know the exact count, but there's at least six or seven pieces there. In the book, it's really only two pieces. So they kind of just embellished on that. But the more important thing is, Aragorn actually carries around the shards of Narsil in his sheath in the book. 
In the movie, of course, it's just sitting on a plaque at Rivendell. In the book, Aragorn knows he's going to be king, is not afraid of becoming king, and he's carrying around the symbol of his kingship with him. So, you know, the story's a little bit different. The character of Aragorn's a little bit different. If you saw my video on characters ruined by Peter Jackson's movies, you kind of know a little bit about that already. But the interesting thing is the sword itself is something that he carries around the whole time. It gets reforged in Rivendell before the Fellowship sets out. And it ends up kind of being important for different points of the story. He, uh, When they reach um, <laughs> Theoden's hall, he, of course, at first very stubbornly refuses to leave it at the door with the door wardens because he doesn't want to give up his sword, which he's been carrying around for you know, 67 years-ish, which is understandable, especially since it's the kingly sword that, you know, has such a huge amount of history behind it. Funny thing about this sword, it's said to be, um, back before it was broken and after it was broken, it would shine with the light of the sun and moon, which is why it's called Narsil originally, which is basically just the two words for sun and moon. Anar or Isil just combine the two into Narsil, it's just a sun moon. That's what the sword was called. After it's reforged, it kind of regains that, and now it's called Anduril, which is Flame of the West. So in both instances, there's a reference to light. Now, the other interesting thing about the sword is it's originally forged by a dwarf. Hmm. It's like the only sword we really know of with any kind of fame that's forged by a person not an elf and not a man. And yet it's the most famous sword in the entire story, probably, other than Sting. So, it's actually, there's a, um, I don't remember exactly where the reference is, but it's made by a dwarf named Telchar in Nogrod, which Nogrod was one of the original, um, original strongholds of the dwarves before most of them were destroyed and you ended up being left with a very small number of dwarves left. Um, so it was made by a dwarf and then reforged by elves, and regain sort of its properties of being, uh, you know, shining with a light. It's not the same light as an elf blade, of course, because it's not made by elves, but nevertheless, there is something semi-magical, at least, about it. The other cool thing about this sword is it's kind of Arthurian in its uh, the way the story plays out. And the reason I say that is in the book, and again, this is something the movies ruin, uh, in the book, when Galadriel and Celeborn are giving gifts to the Fellowship, the gift that they give Aragorn is not some rinky-dink knife, because that's lame. What they actually give him is a scabbard for Anduril, and what Galadriel tells him is that the sword that is drawn from this sheath will not be broken in battle even if the wielder suffers defeat. Now, this is kind of Arthurian, because if you know your Arthurian legends, of course, Arthur had a weapon called Excalibur, and that was a magical sword, but the cool thing about Excalibur, it had a scabbard as well, and if the person had the scabbard, he was invincible. Not quite the same thing, because in one case, it's the person who's invincible, in the other case, it's the sword that's invincible, for lack of a better term. Uh, but you, there is a little bit of an illusion there, and of course, Tolkien did end up at some point writing a, or started writing, I should say, he never finished it, but he started writing a story about the fall of Ar the fall of Arthur uh, in the final battle where he fights with Mordred. So 
there's a little bit of a link there with Excalibur, perhaps. Um, it's not necessarily an intentional one. I don't really know one way or the other. But there's at least a little hint that maybe Tolkien had that going on in the back of his mind. So, anyway, that's Onduril and why it's important. And, of course, it's Aragorn's sword. It's cool. So, those are the named weapons in The Lord of the Rings. Which one's your favorite? Let me know in the comments. So I hope you enjoyed this video. I'm a huge fan of weapons, armor, and that sort of thing. I am a, uh, I'm kind of an, a medieval freak. That's part of the reason I like Lord of the Rings in the first place, is all the, the medieval type of thing that you get with fantasy stories. So if you like this sort of thing, or if you want to learn more about Tolkien or the worlds he created, like the video, share it around, subscribe. You can also follow me at Twitter, at JRRTLore. And until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. Namariye.